say good evening, greet you in Christ's name. It's good to be here tonight. I don't know how many of you noticed the moon on the way to church. A number of you did, maybe. It's a, a big full moon. I'm not sure if it's exactly full, but it was a really, a really pretty sight. I told my son Joel and I, we were riding together. I said, Joel, you should have seen it before they walked on it. And he's like, Really? <laughs> God is amazing. The topic tonight is a close communion. And uh, we want to discuss tonight the concept of why we as Anabaptist, conservative Mennonites, practice a, a practice called close communion, as opposed to open communion or even closed communion. And so that is the goal tonight. We want to look at Scripture and establish uh, why it is that we, uh, we have this position. On the night that Christ was betrayed, He instituted the communion service. And we celebrate that. We celebrate the sacrificial life and death of Christ with physical emblems of the earth, the juice of grapes, and the bread made from wheat. What does that celebration mean? And what does it look like in a practical sense? And the, and the bigger question for tonight is how exclusive should it be? How exclusive should the communion service be? Main focus of tonight's message is the question of who should be a part of a local fellowship celebration of communion. Is it open to anyone who wishes to partake? Is it up to the individual to decide if he or she should partake? And is church membership an issue here? I want to begin this evening with a little perspective from history. And the first one I'd like to go to is, is a guy named John Calvin. I'm not a big John Calvin fan, but uh, John Calvin was a reformer in the 16th century. And he, the Calvinists of today get their name from John Calvin. He was a Swiss, Swiss man in Switzerland. And uh, the story is told of, an, of a Sunday when he preached a, a message and they celebrated communion. And it was very, very different from the way that we celebrate communion. As you can gather from the artist's conception of what that service looked like. It was May of, of 1536 when the citizens of Geneva, Switzerland formally decided to split from Roman Catholicism and for the Reformation. Shortly after this, John Calvin was uh, added to the team of reformers that was working in Geneva, Switzerland. Geneva was a very godly, godless town. It was a, a town that morals were very low. And one of Calvin's functions was to try to bring some morality and, and Christianity into this, in the city of Geneva. And he came up with a plan where there would be four offices in the church, pastors, doctors, elders, and deacons. And they would have some morals in their church. The church, the Reformed church, would in fact enforce some morality instead of the way the Catholic church had done. And if there was serious enough behavior among the church membership, they would be excluded from the communion table. They would not be able to take communion. And there was a council that was set up that included church people and also city government that decided whether people could, should be taking communion or not, or whether they should not. And there were seven rules that if you broke them, you were excluded from communion. I thought that might be interesting to you. If anyone speaks critically against the doctrines, the received doctrine of the church, they would be excluded. If anyone is negligent to come to church in such a way that there's contempt of Christians is apparent. If you just didn't come to church for an extended period of time, you were excluded from communion. If anyone shows himself scornful of the ecclesiastical order, if those who mock at the admonitions of their neighbor would be excluded and other or other notorious and public vices which the church cannot condone. For those crimes which deserve not only verbal rebuke, but correction with punishment. 
And number seven, if through contumacy of rebelliousness such a person attempts to intrude himself contrary to the prohibition. There was a guy named Philip Berthelier who was a, uh, not a very godly man and he decided that he was going to partake in communion there at the church. He was one of the group called themselves Libertines. And Calvin had him excluded from communion initially, but the council decided to reinstate him and the story goes that the, we're having a church service, September 3rd, 1553, at St. Pierre's Cathedral, and there was a big crowd in the church, and these libertines, this group of people, walked in there with the swords in their hands and, and uh, marched right up front and sat next to the communion table. And Calvin, probably shaking in his boots, delivered the communion message, the message, and then walked down to the communion table and put his arms right around the emblems. He put his arms around the emblems. And this is what he said. Uh, These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of my God. These words hit the libertines like a thunderclap, and those who had entered the church so proudly now left it very ashamed of themselves. This was the incident that John Calvin was involved with in 1553. Down through the years, um, the Protestant church, groups of the Protestant church were very concerned about the table, the Lord's table. Especially in Scotland, the Reformed church, they were so concerned that you were worthy to eat the table, that they would issue their members a little token. You had to go through a vetting process, and if you passed all the tests, you were given this little token, which enabled you to partake of communion. So as you came into the church, you had to show this little token. And I went looking for it online, and you can buy them on eBay today. (laughs) These uh, communion tokens from uh, the 17th, 18th century of Scotland. And they'll say nice little things like uh, about communion on there and you are worthy. Down through the years, the Anabaptist uh, tradition has been to practice close, close communion. From the 1500s, I went back and did some research. Back around the 1500s, the Schleitheim Confession of Faith. On down through the years, the Anabaptist tradition has been to practice a close communion where those who were not members of the church had not made some special arrangement or were not part of a what they call like precious faith were not allowed to partake of communion. Fast forward to today. Um, I was down in San Antonio, Texas a few years back at a church, and this was Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas. And I have nothing particular against Oak Hill Church in San Antonio, Texas. It's Max Locato's church. Some of you know Max Locato's writings. He writes some very nice books, uh, Gentle Thunder and and different ones that he writes. And I really appreciate his writing. And I was down there on on a work-related trip. And uh, I said, let's go go to Max Locato's church. And and, uh, we had a nice service there. And I got to hear Max Locato speak. He spoke just like he writes, very gently, very nicely. But I, the thing I wanted to mention tonight about that service, it's very typical of the modern megachurch or lar- more liberal Protestant church in their celebration of the communion service. And uh, it's like it was the church is set up very conveniently. It's kind of reminded me of a mall. Okay, you walk into the foyer of a mall, and there in this church, there was a bookstore. There was a coffee shop. There was all kinds of neat little things that you could do as you uh, began your Sunday experience. And then you walked through from the foyer area into the assembly. And this is what it looks like. This is a picture of, of Oak Hills Church in, in San Antonio. Large mega church, many, many rows of people. There's a stage there where the speakers will come out and speak in the worship uh, band, I su- assume, will provide uh, a worship experience. 
And uh, I sat, went to, to their service, one of their many, several services I think they had during the day. And you walked in there, you were seated. They sang, the, the worship leaders sang some music. I'm not sure if we sang with them or not. But it, anyway, and then this, the, the pastor would come out and preach a message. And then they would, they would do the communion service. And they were very efficient at it. They would have their ushers walk down the aisles with these trays. Okay, you walk down the aisles with these trays of little glasses with the juice in there. And they would walk down the aisle and they would pass the, uh, the uh, tray down through the aisle and you could, as it came by your seat, you would pick up a, a little, little plastic container of, of juice and partake of that. And then they would come down through there with the, uh, with the tray of, of uh, crackers, the little, the little uh, wafers that they used to celebrate the bread. All fine and good. I never could persuade myself to partake of communion in that setting. And I, I don't know if I could define at that time exactly what it's all about, but it's something just seemed terribly wrong with this way of doing communion. And as I was actually preparing to share on this topic, I, I started thinking about what, what it is that the, the modern, uh, more liberal Protestant churches do with the communion service that is so wrong. And I came to the conclusion that it is that they are providing a service for people to where you can self-serve communion to yourself. You're basically serving yourself. And you're partaking of the emblems. And your relationship is with God, hopefully. Hopefully you have a clear relationship with God. And you are, in fact, partaking of the, of the bread and, and the juice. And you're partaking it in a sense that you are relating to God on a one-to-one -one basis. And it very much fits the culture of modern America where we are very individualistic. We go to the mall and we want instant results. We want to pick up what we need and we leave. We go to whatever and we want self-serve. We go to the vending machine and we put in our money and we get out our product and, we, and we're all set. And the modern uh, megachurch, uh, I can't say that every, all of them are like this, it's kind of like that. You, it's like a mall. You walk in, you get your coffee at the, from the barista before you go into the service. You go into the service and you do the service and you leave. And you didn't really celebrate communion. You didn't. I'm convinced that you did not really celebrate a biblical communion. The church is not there to provide a set of bread and juice for you to celebrate communion. The church is there to commune as a body. The church is there to commune as a, as a body of Christ. And the communion is, is much more than a, a vertical one-on-one -on -one with God. It is a one-on-one -on -one with God. It is that, but it is also a communion of believers. It is a drawing together, a common union of believers. And I think that in a nutshell, forms the basis for my belief that there should be a close communion and not an open communion because it is not a self-serve thing. It's not a one-on-one -on -one with you and God. There are three basic ways that I'm aware of to celebrate communion as far as participation in communion. There is what is called open communion and defining that is something like this, admitting to the communion all persons who feel themselves worthy to partake of it. And that's by and large what is practiced today in, in many of our Protestant churches is an open communion. You decide whether you feel like you're all right with God and you partake of communion. The service is provided by the church. They give you the, the blessing on it. They give you the wafers. They give you the, the, the wine or the, the juice. And you partake of it. It's open, but you make the decision. You yourself Am I good with God? And therefore, I will or will not partake of this communion. That's open communion. The second one is, is uh, I went too fast there. Second one is closed communion. And uh, I was amazed at how many of, of the conservative Protestant churches do practice closed communion. Uh, many of the uh, primitive Baptists, I think, would probably be one of the bigger groups that practice what they call closed communion. 
And basically what they say is you have to be a member of this church in order to partake of communion. You come from an identical church down the road as far as doctrine and, and in practice and everything, but you can't partake of communion even though you are there in good standing and all. It is reserved only for members of that church. And that is, that is what closed communion is. The close communion, and I took this definition from Daniel Kaufman's book, Doctrines of the Bible, the communicants are confined to those of like precious faith, acknowledging the jurisdiction and oversight of the church having charge of the communion. That is a definition of close communion. You commune with those of like precious faith, and the church does have some jurisdiction over the communion, whether it is served or not. And I believe that's where we basically are as a church. Is we, we do practice uh, communion such that if you are in good standing and you confess that you are in good standing and uh, there is no, no known problem, um, you can partake of communion. Um, you do your own examination and they, or if your brother uh, sees something, they, they are to approach you and, and uh, take care of that. Along with that, we would provide for uh, someone who is uh, not a member, but maybe here in, in is working toward membership. Uh, he, is in, he or she is intending to join the church. He is there. They are from a, a similar, a, a, a church of like precious faith, and they are looking, moving toward membership. And also on occasion, uh, someone who is visiting, who knows they're going to be coming and they would like to take communion and they, they can make arrangements to have communion. And that can be accomplished. That is close communion. I would like to spend the next little while defining what I think close communion is and then talk about some of the pra practical aspects of what that means for us. I want to look at three scriptures this evening to establish the doctrine. The first one is 1 Corinthians 10, 15 to 22. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to that as I read. I'm going to be reading three passages. Uh, I would encourage you to follow along. And this is the main one as far as relating to close communion. What does it mean to practice close communion? 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not, do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? The next scripture is the one that you're probably most familiar with relating to communion. 1 Corinthians 11. I want to read just a few verses there. Verse 23 to verse 29. But I'd like you to be thinking about as we read this passage, specifically the topic in hand tonight. What about close communion? Is that scriptural? 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread... When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is, cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now to 1 Corinthians 12. Notice the progression here, 10, 11, and 12. 
1 Corinthians 12, I want to read a few verses there. Verse 18 to 27. 1 Corinthians 12 has to do with the body of Christ. And the, the, we are the body of Christ as believers. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we look at this whole concept of close communion. It is very much related to the fact that that we are celebrating communion as the body of Christ. We are celebrating communion as the body of Christ. We are not celebrating it in isolation. We are not celebrating it as an individual. We are celebrating it as a body. Okay, I have, I believe it is five points I'd like to make tonight to establish the principle of a close communion. The first one is, what is a close communion? And the answer, it is a participation together. A participation together, that is from the first scripture that we read, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, the, 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 the key to this first argument, if you will, is that word participation. And the word is translated in other translations, communion. The King James would translate it communion. Uh, It is translated sharing. Uh, The word participation is translated sharing. Uh, The American Standard, the New Living, and the New NASB would translate it that way. And the other words that would be coming from the same Greek word would be the word fellowship. The King James 12 times uses the word fellowship to translate that word. The word is koinonia. The Greek word is koinonia. And it can be translated communion, as we see. It can be translated sharing. It can be translated participation. It can be translated as fellowship. It means doing something together. And I want to share with you a definition. I don't often do this from Vine's Bible Dictionary. The word koinonia, how it is used in the Scriptures. It means having in common, a having in common, a partnership, a fellowship. That's what koinonia means. The share which one has in anything, a participation, fellowship, recognized and enjoyed. Thus it is used of the common experiences and interests of Christian men. The participation in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's one use. The sharing of the realization of the effects of the blood, the death of Christ and the body of Christ as set forth by the emblems in the Lord's Supper. We would call that communion typically. The participation in what is derived from the Holy Spirit, the communion of the Holy Spirit. The participation in the sufferings of Christ. The sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The sharing in the resurrection life possessed in Christ. And so a fellowship with the Father and the Son. The principle is this. Communion, when he uses that term in 1 Corinthians 10, is a sharing or a participation in something. It is a sharing, it is a communion, it is a fellowship in something. And when we share in communion, one of the things that we most commonly think of is we share in the body and blood of Christ. That's what we're doing when we're partaking of these emblems. They are not the communion. This is one thing that we've got to get firmly in our mind. The, The little emblems that we take, they are not communion. They are the forms or the emblems. They are not communion. We think of communion as these little objects. They are not. The communion is the fellowship 
that we have with God. The communion is the fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ when we, we fellowship in his death, we fellowship in his uh, body and his blood. We fellowship that we partake of it, literally. We partake of the death of Christ. We partake of the resurrection of Christ. We partake of it. We share in that when we commune. We share in that. And it should become very precious to us. I hope it is for all of us. It's very precious when we share in what Jesus did for us. We're sharing in that. And we are, it is to be so precious to us as we do that. The, the form is not quite as important. It is, it is to represent something. It, the eating that, that, that piece of bread that we eat is, is not the actual communion. That is a sim- symbol of it. It is emblematic of what we are doing when we're communing with God. We're participating in his death. We are participating in what he has done for us, his broken body and his blood. The thing that I'd really like to focus in on tonight, this sharing in Christ's body, in his blood and in his body, is done in community. It is done in community. It is done with other believers in community. And I use the three circles to illustrate that. It is, it is in fact, as we are communing with God, as we are partaking of, of, of the communion that we have with God, we are also communing with each other. I think you've sensed that here in this church, haven't you? I have. When I'm in here and I'm communing, I'm not only communing with God and, and being drawn closer to God, but I'm being drawn closer to my brothers and sisters, am I not? And I've, I've been so blessed with the communion services that we've had in our church here. It's been such a blessing to me because not only am I drawn closer to God and remembering what He has done for me, but I am drawn in with my brothers and sisters. And it becomes a very blessed communion. That's what communion is. It's a participation in Christ's death, but it is a participation done together. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And the symbolism is maybe not mentioned as often as I used to hear it when I was a little guy. We, with the symbolism of the crushed grain and the way that is, it is made into a bread is, is symbolic of, uh, of the many grains that are being crushed and, and brought together in that bread. And that's symbolic of our communion as a church. The, the grapes that are, that are squeezed and the juice comes out, that is symbolic of our communion together. Not only of our communion with Christ, but with each other. The fact that we are together in this thing. In our communion and participation with Christ, there should be a strong emphasis on unity between the earthly participants. There needs to be, and that is when communion is properly emphasized, there is this community of believers that is strongly emphasized. I probably won't take time tonight, but there is, shortly after Christ instituted the the Last Supper, the communion service, he had that high priestly prayer that one of the disciples must have heard. I think John writes it down in John 17. And his big focus in that prayer, very shortly after this communion service was instituted, was the unity of the disciples. I pray that they all may be one, as you and I are one, that they all may be one. And I think that was his heart's concern. That was his heart's desire, that there would be unity. And I think that is in fact, symbolized by our breaking bread together. That there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care one for another. One member suffers, all suffer together. This is from 1 Corinthians 12. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Our doctrine of close communion it's based on the principle that communion is taken in community with the local body that is caring and responsible for each other. We know each other. We have cared for each other. We have shared experiences together. We are accountable to each other. I speak into your experience. You speak into mine. 
That is as communion should be. So that's the first principle that I would like to share tonight. Communion is a participation together. The second one is that communion is a proclamation together. Communion is a proclamation. I take that from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As we have our communion service, we are proclaiming to all and sundry who may be observing, and to ourselves, I guess, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are shouting it abroad, if you will, in a very powerful way. We are proclaiming the death of Christ by sharing together. It's not a secret thing that we do in celebrating communion. You know, there was some, there was some, some talk back in the early church that these were cannibals. And they did have their service and they were eating Christ's body. And people got suspicious about people. That's, that's not, we don't do it in secret. We don't do it in any kind of closet. We do it openly as a proclamation of the Lord's death until He comes. Family that's here, children, visitors that are here during our services, that's good. That's a good thing. And that's one of the tools in our evangelistic chest is a celebration of the Lord's Supper. The questions that may be asked by someone that's not knowledgeable and is observing, what are they doing? What are they doing? Eating and drinking. What ceremony is this? What does it mean? We are not hiding it. We are proclaiming it. We openly celebrate the price that was paid for our redemption. We show how much He loves us. We, we show that He so loved the world. We show the message of salvation in the bread and wine or grape juice. And we continue to show it until the return of our Lord. The other thing that I think that we're showing is our personal connection to each other. In partaking communion, when we are together, we are showing our love for each other. We are showing the connection that we have, the closeness that we have in our fellowship. Uh, we are showing that. And those who are observing can see John 13.35 by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The closeness of the body, the joy that is obvious in, the, in our midst is a proclamation. Everyone should be able to sense that deep joy with a thankful demeanor, a quiet intensity of celebration. And we're to keep doing that until he comes back. I have sensed that joy, haven't you, in our communion service? I have sensed it. I've come away from a communion service with just joy in my heart. I felt so blessed. And there is a real joy there. And that we, and as people can observe that and, and see that it, it is a witness to them. It's a proclamation. Number three. What is close communion? It's a remembrance together. For I received from the Lord that I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We remember, and I think this is more aptly expressed in our communion messages. It is a remembrance how soon we forget. We need reminders. The monuments in our lives are there. We have anniversaries. We have birthdays. We have holidays. And we remember. We just came through a holiday on Friday where we remember our veterans. The most important marker for us as believers is our salvation when we got saved in, in the blood of Christ in our lives. And we are to remember by a simple ritual. We file up by here and are given a piece of bread. And we go back to our seats and we hold this bread until the lead pastor, whoever's up here doing the service, says let's eat together and then we eat together. The same thing happens with the cup. A common pitcher, if you will, or container is then eventually ends up in these little cups and we go back and we stand together and then we drink together. It's a remembrance together. And it, it draws us closer together. 
Yes, it is a remembrance, and that's the primary focus there, but it's a remembrance that we do together. We don't do it in isolation. We do it as a body. We do it together. We remember together. Number four, what is close communion? It is a together feast. This is one of the more difficult areas of of communion and has led to all kinds of heretical teachings over the years. Yes, we do eat the body of Christ. We do feast on the blood of Christ, but we don't do it literally. We are not cannibals. We do it in a spiritual sense, only in a spiritual sense. Jesus is not physically present on earth. He is in heaven. He is in heaven. His Holy Spirit is here in a spiritual sense. We are not partaking of the literal body of Christ. And people gave their lives over the years as they, as they stood up for the doctrine that we believe that this is in fact a spiritual feast that we have, not a, an actual eating of the blood and body of Christ. It was very confusing. Christ shared it, that, he, that we need to eat Him. He is a living bread. And many people couldn't understand that and they turned back from following Christ. It's a very difficult teaching. But as he goes on further, he says, My, I'm speaking of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that he's speaking about. It's not the literal bread. And as I mentioned, our Roman Catholic uh, friends and, and others of the liturgical uh, folks would still say that, in fact, it is literal. When the priest blesses it, when he does his little bow down to the uh, casket where the bread is kept, that it turns into Christ's body and blood. I, I feel that's very heretical, and it should not be something that we in, indulge in. It's a, fe- a spiritual feast, and we do it together. It satisfies our hunger. It satisfies our need of Christ. And we feast on Him in community. We feast together. We share the spiritual food together. We worship together. And the communion table is a corporate experience. Its significance is a community sharing together, eating and drinking. It's not a self-serve experience. We share in a common cup, if you will, in a common loaf of bread. We wait for each other and eat together, and we drink together. This is communion. Number five, and probably the most uh, belabored point that I will make tonight, close to it anyway, is that we share a close communion, and it is a call to accountability. And that is where I believe the open communion does not do the job. Open communion it does not have in it the accountability factor. When I sat down in that church in San Antonio, just as an example, and I'm not picking on that church, when I sat down there and they passed the, the wafers down the aisle, and I took, if I would have taken one and ate, ate it and took the juice and drank it, I am not being accountable to anybody. No one around me knows whether I am a murderer. Nobody knows whether I am cheating on my wife. Nobody cares. I should say they do care, but they're certainly not. It's not, it's not, there's no accountability for it. And that's where the breakdown, I believe, is in, in the open communion, is that in fact there is not very little accountability. I've heard in another church I was, we were up in um, British Columbia this summer on vacation, and we went to a large uh, it was kind of, it used to be a Mennonite church, but it's no longer it has a Mennonite name in it. But it uh, the pastor there gave a very nice, nice sermon about communion before the communion emblems were passed. And he said, you need to make sure you're right with God and you need to, you know, don't take it if you're not and that kind of thing. But there was no accountability. It was still up to myself only whether I would take or not take. There was, a, uh, there was an incident that happened here in this very church and I can still see him here. Dear old brother Milton was standing right up here where where I'm standing, and uh, Milton had gotten to know, uh, had a friendship with a, a lady that she still lives right down here in Gladys, and uh, she came to church a few times, and uh, I, he must have invited her to come to church, and she came and was here during a uh, communion service, and uh, we try to make it a, 
practice in our communion service, and I think we forget sometimes to explain ourselves a little bit before we do the communion, that in fact we do practice close communion. And the visitors are more than welcome to be here, but that we would not expect them to partake. This lady, and I, and I, st- I, I saw her in the back earlier, and then I kind of observed her as she was there, and I was sitting back, partway back the audience. I saw her come forward. And I saw Milton up front there, and I saw the lady, and I saw Milton, and I'm like, oh boy, what is going to happen here? Because she was coming through the line, and dear Milton, the gentleman ever, the nicest man in the world, he was standing up here, what was he going to do? What was he going to do? And he, he served her communion. And I still remember that. It made a real impression on me. And uh, he, did, he did serve her communion. But that is where this accountability thing comes in, is in fact, how accountable are we to each other in a church body as far as communion goes? I've heard it raised here just recently on the discussion of communion. The Bible says you are to examine yourself. It doesn't say anything more than that. Well, it does say that. And I want to enlarge on that. But there is more than that. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. The Corinthians is where we get a lot of our teaching from as far as communion. And the context here is that there was a man in the Corinthian church, obviously a church member, who fell into sin. And he was into gross, terribly gross sin. And um, they weren't doing anything about it. They were letting him be in the, in, the, in the church. He was obviously celebrating communion with them. And he was in the church and, and they were not, not taking any action against this man. And uh, we're breaking in here for the sake of time. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 5. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I do with judging outsiders it is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I firmly believe that this was a case where the church needed to excommunicate. And that's what that term is all about, is to take away from communion someone who is not fit for communion. I don't know if this man was deluded, if he was just sure of himself, if he actually did examine himself. We know that Paul encouraged the Corinthians to examine themselves. But this man, that didn't stop him. He was there. He was considered a brother. He was carrying on in the church. And Paul says you need to excommunicate this guy. He does not belong in your communion. He cannot partake. And I think that is where the church becomes accountable and needs to take action against someone who is not examining himself the way they should and needs to excommunicate in this. We are responsible as a sound New Testament body of believers to be accountable to each other. I've heard accusations, something along this line, that close or closed communion is so exclusionary. How can you exclude someone from communion who in fact is a professing Christian. How can you do that? How can you do that? My answer is, are we excluding someone by our practice of close communion? No, we're not. They are excluding themselves. And I think I could speak for anyone in this church fellowship that we love to have people come in and commune with us, sincere people. We love, the door is open, the the handle is on the outside. Come in, please. Come be part of our fellowship. Come be part of our interaction. Come be part of our back and forth. Please come in. We want you here. Okay, we want you here. We're not excluding you. 
But we are asking that you be a committed part of this church, that you be a committed member of this church, that you be a committed person who is willing to be accountable to to whomever, that you get to know everybody in the, in, the, in the church and that they can speak into your lives and you can speak into their lives and then you can be a part of it. We're not excluding you. There's nothing stopping you from taking part in our communion service. You just need to commit to the body. You need to commit to the body. And that's, the, that's the, unfortunately a real struggle with many people is they, they, they want to they go to a vending machine. I, I, this sounds crass, doesn't it? Preacher shouldn't stand up here and say that. But they want to come, and you could envision a vending machine at the back of the church. They want to stick in their token, and they want to get out the communion wafers, and they want to take communion, and then they want to move on. That's not the biblical model of communion. That is not. That is not. You, we do wrong in that model of communion. We do ask for a commitment to the local body. We do ask for a commitment for accountability. Why don't you commune with those of different denominations? Is another question that's going to come up. Why are you so, uh, so stuck up? Or why are you so exclusive that you know, people from another Bible-believing church can come in and you won't, you won't offer them communion? That's, that's a legitimate question. And I don't know if I could give a, a, a long answer, but I can give you a short answer. And the short answer is that doctrine matters in churches. Doctrine matters. Practical living, outliving matters. Doctrine matters in that if, if you are saying that you are a Bible-believing church, but you're not following the Bible commands, and you are not following through on the Bible commands, that fellowship that, 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 I, could possibly have, that I could have with those of like precious faith is not there. It's not there. You're a Christian. I am not questioning your Christianity. No, I am not. But the fellowship, the close fellowship that I can have with someone of like precious faith is, is not there. Um, communion does make a statement as to the oneness in our obedience to scriptures in a very practical sense. The next objection that you hear, and I, I mentioned it already, is that don't doesn't the isn't it a personal matter? Is it not just a personal matter? If as long as I'm if I'm clear before God, I should be able to commune. And the answer is is pretty pretty straightforward. Yes, it is a personal matter. Scripture clearly says you need to examine yourself. The scripture that is used in that is 1 Corinthians 11. Let a man examine himself and so take of the communion. That's, that's very true. I would like you to back up just a little bit and look at how the context of that passage. The context is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He is not writing to a universal church per se. He's writing to a local church. And within that church, there were people who were living, not living right and they were not examining themselves. This was a church fellowship that had within them people who were not right and they were not examining themselves. That doesn't preclude these other uh, restrictions that we have. It certainly does not. He's writing a, to a local church As a church fellowship, we also are responsible to disciple each other, and that cannot be accomplished when there is not that fellowship that is established. Where doctrinal and practical differences are large, this discipline is impossible. I'd like to share in, in closing here, this final point, a, a little reading, and bear with me. I stumbled on this. It's a, it's a, it's a writing by J.C. Winger. Some of you are familiar with his writings. He was a Mennonite fellow from Pennsylvania, went out to Goshen College, and so on. J.C. Wanger, John Christian Wanger, wrote an article called The Lord's Supper. And I want to read a portion of it to you. And I, he says it a whole lot better than I could. I think he's sound in what he shares. Listen carefully. The assumption of those who defend close communion 
is that the Lord's Supper requires a common faith and a common separation from the world. Furthermore, the scriptures teach that although the individual shall examine himself, the church also does have some responsibility for the Christian life of its members. Paul, for example, requested the church at Corinth to expel from its fellowship the incestuous person. That's the passage I read. Those who hold to close communion do, do not claim omniscience. They claim only that there are biblical requirements for membership in the church and for admission to the Lord's table. A major reason for close communion is that church discipline would be meaningless if only the individual himself were the judge as to whether he enjoyed full fellowship in the congregation. It seems impossible to recognize the norms of all other denominations as satisfying New Testament requirements for church membership. Close communion is therefore in part made necessary by the behavior of some professing Christians, and in part it is occasioned by the sub-Christian standards of some denominations. It would seem inconsistent to refuse communion to a member of one's group for not accepting the discipline of the group, but to offer communion to an individual from another group having no such disciplinary standard. Adherents of close communion, generally the stricter Christian bodies, therefore regretfully insist that they must continue to offer the emblems of the sacramental signs only to those in full fellowship in their group. They recognize full well, of course, that other denominations contain many spiritual members who are just as much entitled to come to the Lord's table as their own members. It is not those spiritual and consecrated members who make close communion necessary. It is rather the fact that many professing believers are not of that type and yet are rated as communicant in their respective churches because said churches do not strictly insist on biblical standards of life for their members. The basic question, therefore, is whether those groups having their present high requirements for membership and communion should lower those standards down to the level of a Christendom, which too often appears lukewarm spiritually. Shall the church succumb to the easygoing type of Christian life, which is all too prevalent today, or must it follow the Lord in personal cross-bearing and earnest discipleship at any cost? To ask the question is to answer it. Nevertheless, Close communion is not something to gloat about. It is a matter of deep regret. It calls for an even greater manifestation of redeeming love toward all men, and especially toward those who are in Christ in the various denominations of Christendom. I want to recap then the points that I made in this message. Summary, why close communion? Number one, practice of biblical communion mandates, number one, participating together. We commune together, we participate together. Number two, proclaiming together. Number three, remembering together. Number four, feasting together. And number five, being accountable for each other. That is, I believe, a firm basis for uh, the practice of close communion. That is my conviction, and I trust it's, it's most of yours.